0: It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes.
0: Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextwheelcom slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more.
1: Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add
0: to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day,
1: the hot rock and relic the better one plus members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes
0: we also record additional pre and post show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear like conversations about similarly themed movies and answering listener questions from our live member chat speaking
1: of our live member chat we record almost all of our episodes in discord where members can chat
0: right along with us live members get access to other members only channels in our discord community as well on top of all that members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private next Real feed just for them that includes all the shows in the next reel family the next Real, the film board movies we like sitting in the dark and more new projects on the way to top it all off members don't have to listen to ads we've already eliminated those annoying dynamically inserted ads that let's face it we all hate it we are listening to you we love podcasting for a living and those ads help to pay the bills now we're counting on you dear listener
1: we promise we aren't going back to those terrible dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all all we ask is that you consider supporting the NextReal family of podcasts with a membership.
0: Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership.
1: Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright And I'm Andy Nelson Welcome to the next reel When the movie ends Our conversation begins The Killers is over The job comes first But afterwards We'll have business together You've been asking for it lately
0: Hey! Any objections? Yeah
1: You touch me and you won't live till morning
0: You'll not meet them tomorrow are I sweet? Most of them turned out to be unhealthy.
1: The farmer died from natural causes. The Swede and Blinky Franklin were both killed. Do you know who else was in the gang? You were.
0: (laughs) Reach for that and I'll kick your brains out.
1: Okay, Andy. It's the Killers, 1946. Yes, we're doing. We're continuing our our uh, uh, romp through adaptations.
0: 1947 Academy Award nominees for best writing screenplay, as they called it at the time. Uh, they obviously later changed it to best adapted screenplay, but that's where we are. This is the fourth of five films nominated uh, for this particular set, and it's based on Ernest Hemingway's short story the killers uh let's start there did you have a chance did you have a chance to read it
1: very short story (laughs) i got to the end of it and wondered where the movie was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> is, it even, is it even fair to call it an adaptation and not just a screenplay hint
0: i laugh at that but you know in my as, as we kind of continue these series i'm watching other films also from the year mm-hmm. and last night i started the film bedlam which is a uh, val luton produced film and mark Robson directed <laughs> And I laughed really hard at the start because it said, in the scope of adapted stories, inspired by the painting series, A Rake's Progress, <laughs> and it was like a particular <laughs> panel by William Hogarth, and I'm like, wow, i <laughs> never heard of, a, oh of, a, of a, a film adapted from an image in a painting. I'm like, that is uh, <laughs> quite a step. But yes, uh, in the scope of adaptations... This one, it's such an interesting place to start because it is such a short story. It's essentially the first 12 minutes of this film. And it's about these two hitmen who come to this diner in the middle of the night or late evening. And they take the two people who work there and a customer hostage and kind of set up a situation waiting for the Swede to show up and kind of have this conversation with them about why they're going to kill the Swede and all this. And then we follow when the Swede doesn't show up. These two leave and one of them runs to tell the Swede in his apartment. The Swede is very like, "Yeah, I'm not going to do anything about it. Very... Uh, resigned to the fact that these uh, two are gunning for him isn 't going to run isn 't going to call the cops is just just lays there, and then the story comes back and continues in the diner after that as these three are having this conversation about like i can 't believe it i don 't understand it why would a guy just lay there like that and that 's kind of the end of the story and what the what the adaptation did is it examines what led this person to this particular frame of mind where he's just going to lay here and accept his fate. So when these two gunmen come into his place, he lets them kill him. And that's the end of it.
1: That's the end of it. I actually, I mean, you know, Hemingway and reportedly Hemingway dug it, the movie, the adaptation and said that this is a good. <laughs> oh,
0: reportedly, the only thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I, I, I like, I mean, I liked them. I like them both. Uh, I feel like the um, weirdly. I read the short story after I watched the movie and weirdly I it was I did not find it jarring that it ended where it did it felt like a complete short story to me it felt like a complete piece that ended on a very very sad note uh the movie is just uh, a, a, a what if it's it's a what if uh Ernest Hemingway's what if
0: what I found so interesting about it is it paints this portrait uh, of a character as just the idea of coming to this place where you're not going to run anymore, where you are resigned. And it's like, I don't know, it made me kind of question, is he giving up? Is he just accepting his fate? Uh, you know, where where is that line? And I thought that kind of was probably what Hemingway was exploring with the story is, is this idea of at what point do you just accept the way things are going to be? and move on with it and allow things to play out as they need to, as opposed to can continue fighting it. Um, I, I, you know, he wrote it in the late twenties. And so, you know, I was, I was like, is there something of the time that kind of fit into that? And I, you know, it wasn't quite like the great depression or anything like that. But I, I, I think that certainly there was enough hardship going on still that I, I think you can look at like this idea of just resigning yourself to your fate and accepting the way things are, as a, an interesting mindset to study, and that's what I found so interesting about the story uh, that he wrote. Yes, and then he adapted it and and gave us more meat to that. But in the scope of the crux of what he was creating, I guess it's an interesting question: Did they find a way to kind of keep that essence in the story?
1: Well, I think that's one of the things that's most interesting about the story and the uh, of the film because the movie just teases at all the things you just talked about. Is it resignation? Is it fatigue like world weariness? He's just tired of running, whatever. We don't get to know why he ended up at this place where he gives up and allows himself to be killed. And I think the movie tries to answer that question. Why is this guy so tired? And we're going to do it in a couple of different ways. We're going to do it through this bonkers nonlinear narrative. We're going to tell you all All kinds of flashbacks to lead us to the death of this guy. And we're going to show you that through both his literal journey and the metaphorical journey of his career as a boxer, both of those things come to an end as a result of events, right? As a boxer, he fights so hard, he fights so hard, he never gives up until he loses his hand. And that becomes his undoing of his career. And that contributes to the fight so hard, fight so hard, fight so hard to try and get ahead in the world. And he's Undone by these unscrupulous characters that he's thrown in with as a, as a a criminal in this heist. And all of these things cause him to just sort of fall apart and lead to, you know what, I'm just going to lay on the bed and hold on to the bed rail and take whatever comes next. And, and I think that's the interesting thing. That's the thing that makes the movie additive to the story. I can see why you might say if you're a real Heminghead. You might say, oh, it removes all the mystery from like what the, the, the sort of sweet encapsulation of grief that Hemingway captured in the story. But to me, as a piece of film, notwithstanding all the other noir contributions that this thing offers, uh, I think it gives us a lot to the adaptation uh, of this character of the Swede and all the people that revolve around him. That's my rant.
0: I really agree with that. I think that they found a way to capture that essence and give us a reason for it. Uh, Did we need the reason? No. In Hemingway's story, no. I think that's the point of that particular story. But the way that we get it here, we get more of a reason to it. And I think it works just as well. Like, now we really can understand and still ask ourselves, like did the Swede hit this point where he's resigned because of, uh, you know, the femme fatale and, and how his life was kind of destroyed by her. Is he giving up? Is he just resigned to fate? Uh, like, where is all of this? And, and I still think we have all those questions, but just in a bigger scale. And I found it to be a fascinating exploration and continuation of where Hemingway left, left us.
1: Yeah. And, and it's a, this sort of fatigue, this world weariness is Hemingway's jam, right? Like he lives in a space where people are done and they're going to do whatever it takes to do what's next. But they have they're so done that they're willing to make interesting choices with their lives. And that I, I think the movie doesn't do anything to diminish that spirit. And that's one of the things that makes the movie solid.
0: Are you familiar much with Anthony Weiler, who uh, is the one credited for writing the screenplay? We should just note that John Huston and Richard Brooks actually co-wrote this screenplay first. um, But I guess because, at least in John Huston's situation, he was contracted with a different studio and so had to... Uh, be uncredited just the craziness of the way things were back then who knows i'm not sure why richard brooks wasn't but it did get credited specifically to anthony viler who obviously still worked on it uh have you seen many of the films that he had written which is you know a pretty lengthy list
1: yeah it's like enough uh right like to to be surprised at how many he had written i was actually really surprised i had watched the why we fight documentary and he was uh he was the like i i knew his name first as a narrator i couldn't have pulled it out of thin air for you but that was the first thing i thought of when i when i read his list of credits was i've seen that there are a couple of other movies in here that i feel like we've you know i've seen but uh, i am not a uh i'm I, I Anthony Weiler is not a, a catalogue I have celebrated in the past.
0: I, I, well, he's certainly a name who crosses my path uh, a number of times. I, I don't think I've ever sought him out, but it is interesting when I'm like, "Oh, stage door." he, he worked on that. He was an uncredited writer on Gunga Din. Uh, he Gunga worked Din, on: right? Yeah, he worked on um, "The Stranger. This same year as this with uh, Orson Welles. And it's interesting, having been somebody who, you know, worked on this along with John Huston, he ended up writing a number of scripts for John Huston later in John Huston's directorial career. Moulin Rouge, Beat the Devil, The List of Adrian Messenger, The Night of the Iguana, and, which was his last uh, screenplay. And so... I don't know. I I don't have a good sense of him as a writer, but just looking at the list of stuff that he's worked on, I think it's fair to say it's probably okay for him to be credited for this, whereas the other two uh, uncredited didn't get anything. I'm sure that he still contributed quite a bit to the work here.
1: I'm sure he did. I, although I have to say, like just knowing m- more about John Huston, this feels to me more like a John Huston movie, and uh, so I need to I need to study up on Vilar because um, you know I, I'm sure you're right, and he deserves more of the credit tonally. I don't know how to assign him that sort of credit when John Huston's name looms so large.
0: Interesting that you mentioned uh, the the kind of the tone and everything. Do you think that? After we're outside of the uh, the opening twelve minutes that that comprised of Hemingway's short story, which largely also still had a lot of Hemingway dialogue, does it still feel like they kept that voice? Do, like, do you feel like we're still getting that snappy Hemingway tone through the rest of the film, which also fits very much into kind of noir?
1: Uh, well, it, yeah, I mean, that was what I that was what my comment would have been. Like, how much would you assign to? classic Hemingway dialogue versus tropes of the then kind of burgeoning noir. Yeah. Right? Because I, I think it's kind of hard to tell the difference on on the film. I don't know how I would how I would make that statement. To me it feels consistent to me.
0: I, I it feels uh stronger in the opening for sure. Like I, I feel like the dialogue with those two killers and, and like when they're in the cafe or the diner with those three people like i just feel like they're they're very sharp dialogue. like i feel like they capture it mostly through the rest of the film and i think there are some lines like i loved the the cop's last line uh to um to ava gardner's character don't ask a dying man to lie his soul into hell I'm like oh that's such a great line. yeah <laughs> like such there a great are, line. there are moments like that that still really shine but i just like uh, the the hemingway of that open, I just, I, it just, it's really sings.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's a beautiful setup for the film. Where the film, I and I think this is just where the film feels dated to me. Movies where the protagonist is an insurance investigator in the 50s and 60s feels to me like kind of a comical premise for a crime film and i never quite got to the other side of it because i don't think of insurance as sexy and i think in the 50s maybe insurance was did you do you did that hit you at all
0: it only hit me in the sense that it definitely felt like something that we would be seeing in in the era, like, we had seen that a few years before with Double Indemnity, and so I, I think that there's space, especially in the world of insurance, because of the idea of fraud in insurance and how well that can potentially tie into uh, you know, the, noir, the noir tone, yeah. right, exactly. Right. I think that it ended up working. You know, it's funny, Edmund O'Brien really is such a noir face, like he really appeared in just so many noirish sorts of films and certainly I appreciate him more in films like DOA than something like this where I I feel like when he's a little more on the criminal side of things I appreciate him more and I think with him as this insurance investigator I I don't know. I found it to be the part of the film that I I was less interested in. I I like the structure. (laughs) I like the investigation, but it is one of those things where I'm like, well.
1: But part of what I show up for these movies, right, it's uh, uh, noir in general, but is the moral ambiguity, right? It's like everyone's out for their own. They're all sort of chaotic neutral. (laughs) and i i look at him in this movie and i'm like okay another insurance investigator like looking out for big insurance and trying to do right by the corporate interests uh it just feels like every scene i'm like really lady are you taking him seriously why do you look scared he's an insurance guy like what is going like i never quite got over the hump of like taking it as a as as serious as, as it probably as i know it was intended to be i just didn't get there it felt dated he, he i'm with you his was the part that i was least interested in you get me on the heist stuff like i really love the interpretation of the heist the the way it all came together it was the those flashbacks i thought were really great and i liked the the betrayal the double twist and and all of that Our our femme fatale that particular character archetype ava gardner is wonderful wonderful i just the insurance guy i struggled i struggled with so it wasn't it's either not funny enough or not serious enough
0: well and it was one of those things like we end on this weirdly comedic <laughs> moment between him and his boss as his boss is like yeah i'll give you a day off take the weekend i'll see you back on monday and on he monday. does a double take and then and then that might the as well been bewitched. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then we get the end and then he turns back into the doorway and gives his boss like that little smile and stuff. Right. I'm like, wow, What a weirdly like goofy ending for this otherwise really great, uh, you know, noir film. And I can't help but wonder if they had gone the route more of like Citizen Kane, because this is often compared to. I shouldn't say often, but in recent years, it has been compared to Citizen Kane as like the Citizen Kane of noir because of the story structure as we're kind of getting different voices from this, um, you know, present day person who's going around interviewing people and kind of piecing everything together. I think that that's there, but I can't help but wonder if... The film would have been stronger if the insurance salesman was more a character like in Citizen Kane, where he's not necessarily a front and center character, is ju- but is more just our window into each of those stories, you know?
1: For sure.
0: Or actually somebody who was also trying to pull a fast one and, and as, or maybe as he went through the process of investigating this found himself getting closer and closer to wanting to get the money for himself and you oh, know we get a little bit more brilliant. of that i just don't know Brilliant. coming on the heels of double indemnity if that would have been too much to have yet another crooked insurance salesman story that we didn't really need when and, and you know i can't help but feel like the first version would for me would have been better because it would have really let us focus the story on everything going on in the past
1: what's interesting about all that entire armchair reinterpretation is that it puts the focus uh, well, I I wonder if it would allow us to put more focus on—I uh, wanted the Swede to be my central protagonist, right? I kept, I kept feeling like, even through flashback, he could be the one that I was most focused on. And they kept trying to drag me back in to the insurance story. And he never changed, our investigator. He never changed over the course of the story. And I think you're getting to the central point. Give him some sort of epiphanal awakening that he could get some out of this deal, right? He could walk away with his own and not just for the good of big corporate like that was a piece that I was missing. And again, maybe that is you're helping me put more words to why the movie does not hold up uh, as well in that particular area to me, because we are now in an era of really questioning the role of big corporate. And today's insurance investigator would not be played this way in this movie if it were made today, I don't think.
0: It's. I mean, it really goes to the the tricky line of writing a story like this, where you have, where you're splitting the protagonist and the main character apart from each other. And I'd say that the prot- protagonist in this film still is Burt Lancaster's character, the Swede, uh, or uh, Ole Anderson, but the main character is kind of our insurance salesman. He's the one who's driving the story and trying to kind of through him kind of where the story is being told. And I think that it's such a challenging way to tell stories and it can work incredibly effectively like the Shawshank Redemption. But I think there are times where in this film is, is an interesting example where tonally it does feel a little bit where the pull, the two are kind of pulling themselves apart.
1: Yeah. That's that. Uh, not to take away at all from how they are pulling s- themselves apart, right? The look and feel of this film is so raw noir to me. I mean, it's still, we're still pretty early. In, in seeing movies made like this. And the high contrast, the highs and lows, the darks and lights, the shadow, crisp, crisp beams of light, I think is it, just the use of those tools is brilliant. And, and some of the shot composition is just extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So I love how the film looks and plays with these characters on screen. I love watching him box. I love watching them walk down dark alleys like all of those Quint essential moments are here, right? And and you can see why this movie contributes to defining uh, a genre that that was formulated in these years.
0: Yeah, Robert Siodmak was a filmmaker who had been around, who came from Europe and then really started kind of digging into... I, I don't think he really started doing noir until a few years before this with like with Phantom Lady but then you know right before this the spiral staircase which i just rewatched a really a fun creepy little uh, little film that works well in this genre also crisscross a few years after this is another really uh, great one but definitely a director who's who's bringing some interesting dark perspective to the way that uh, that he would tell stories and i certainly enjoy seeing what siad mac does elwood bridell is the cinematographer or woody bridell as he was uh, called here is the cinematographer and you know i don't know if i have seen much more of his stuff like lady on a train and uh, again phantom lady but otherwise i don't know if i've seen much of the work that he's done so i can't speak to like how these two work together or anything but i think Together, they are capturing beautiful noir, just shadows and just just the way that the pools of light play and the way the camera moves. It's just it works very effectively for this uh, for the genre.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, playing with that, the sort of narrative complexity, the look of the film, they also were able to attribute violence to screen and staying in the reins of the production code. The The sequence where they kill him in the bed is really gruesome through use of sound and the assassin standing in the doorway and yet you never see it it only reminded me that we were in the production code era when they're at the restaurant and he says the steak sandwich is for me the milk is for the lady like they're in a like a bar (laughs) she just got a, a milk and i thought oh okay all right there's a standard at play here but it feels like the the movie is pushing those boundaries
0: well, but I th- yeah, and I think also like because like, wasn't that she was not wanting to drink anything, but then later she asks for a, a much heavier drink because she's just like, I am done with you, right, right. So I, th- I think that was I think that was it's just there. also part of the setup of that particular scene. It's, its character it just jumped out at me because milk really, <laughs> <laughs> maybe she's like Sergeant Nick Angel,
1: yeah, right. <laughs>
0: right keeping her mind sharp <laughs> well and as a femme fatale isn't
1: it interesting that she like her arc as like that one of the big twists is that she ended up married to the other criminal and starting a life and and how it in that conversation that they have in that in that dinner, says, tell me what to do. I want to get out of it. I'm married. I have a husband now, right? The word "husband" has such weight in that scene because it it sort of absolves her. It's her attempt to absolve her past deeds, only to find out that it's you know it, it was her her husband is what's his name, Big Charlie. The big, big Jim Colfax, big Jim Colfax, big big Charlie, as I like, <laughs> he likes me when I call him that. And so I thought that was that was really interesting. And I loved the final scene when he's dying on the stairs and that long, luscious shot of her screaming, just say it just say I'm innocent, please, please, Jim, please say I'm innocent. Tell them I'm innocent as he's already dead. Like this, that captures such an extraordinary volume of hopelessness in this movie that I was, I mean, I was really moved by that sequence. I thought it was, it was perfect.
0: And it speaks so well to the idea of the femme fatale, right? I mean, and I think yeah. that's why Ava uh, Gardner works so well in the role here because she's, you know, as sexy as she needs to be and draws the sweet in as much as she needs to. And, uh, but then also has this darkness to her, this dark side. And it's not like she's out and out malicious, but she's always making these decisions that, you know, go down this one particular road. And even right to the end, she's just like, you need to get me out of this. Like I I don't want to be accused. All you have to do is say one thing and I'm free. Like she just wants she's just, you know, anything she can think of at that point. And it's just and again, that speaks to that fantastic last line that the detective has. Don't ask a dying man to lie his soul into hell. I oh god, so, so good. Yeah. So
1: good. <laughs>
0: going back to kind of like the crime and and the the look of the film i just want to also call out the uh, i found really effective way that they portrayed the actual heist where it's just like a single shot on a on a crane where we get the three of or the four or five i'm losing track of how many there were now but all of them arriving in line with a bunch of workers coming into this uh, this hat manufacturing company, and we follow them in, we see them following the group or kind of following the group and then parting from the group as they head into the uh, the payroll area and meanwhile we're getting kind of the voiceover describing it, which you know we can argue if we needed it or not, but we get to really see them. In one single shot, as the camera booms up and we see them in the room, taking him hostage, getting the money, coming out, getting into, like running out, uh, you know, getting into their cars, trying to drive away. The security guard comes out and shooting at them. One car gets stopped by a truck and has to like turn around, and reverse, and kills <laughs> the, shoots the guard and drives off. Like in one uh, beautifully choreographed shot, I'm like, this is like, fantastic filmmaking because it kept the tension going and it just it made for a really interesting way to kind of put the scene together and work really well
1: i loved it it was great and it just i love how they didn't like it's just an act of restraint not to create a sequence in the hat factory right with some yeah right which they could have (laughs) there was there were no hat antics. And I thought that shows an enormous amount of restraint. I, I, I also thought, like, it, it's kind of a roller coaster piece because you get the intensity and the drama of the setup as they're walking in and you wonder, are they going to get caught? They're walking right past the police the, or the security. And then as they run out, it becomes just a little bit vaudeville when the camera can't go through or when the car can't go through and you watch the entire sequence play out in real time. That's funny. That's legitimately funny. And I love that they are in the span of that one unbroken shot. They're they're giving me a lot emotionally to work with and react to. That's that's the real like depth uh in, in that sequence. I think it works it plays incredibly well.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And and it says this isn't as much a heist story like I cel- I I told, I, I said early on, like I really celebrate. I love the heist part. The heist is kind of a small part of the film itself, even, you know, but I like it and I like the undoing of it because that's part of the investigation. How are they going to split the money? How are they going to, you know, unravel their relationship? And And that becomes the real, you know, the real heist, because there is a second heist, the heist of the money from each other. And that's the that's a part that I think is is uh, strong.
0: It's I mean, that's and that's an interesting thing to bring up, because in the scope of genres like I find it hard to say that this is a heist film, even though it has heist a heist in it. It's a crime film, but I don't know if I would call it a heist film out and out. It's like, I don't know. where Where's that line for you?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's in my head. I call I use the word heist. But as we're talking about it, the heist is small, right? It's it's really the the flashback reaction to the heist. And maybe that's enough. I don't know that I have a real hard heist line.
0: Well, it's just so funny, because I suppose in some of our, like, we've done series on heists, and and, yeah. and I...
1: This wouldn't, I wouldn't put this in there.
0: Well, but that's funny, because the heist isn't necessarily always a big thing, even in those. It's like, it's part of the story, but... You know, so much of the story also involves like the planning and the post elements of the heist. This film certainly deals with the post elements of the heist. The planning is pretty uh, sparse. It's kind of already it's it's pre-planned as he just kind of has a conversation with everybody, and that one guy backs out. But I think largely it's a yeah, it just doesn't end up feeling like a heist film. So that's just interesting in the scope of genre why this doesn't necessarily feel like a heist film, even though it has a heist in it. It's like calling it a boxing film. I wouldn't call it that either.
1: I also wouldn't call it a, But then what would you call it? An insurance film?
0: It's an insurance <laughs> film. Well, it's it's a crime film. I think it's definitely a crime film. It certainly is a film noir. And, you know, I think with, with those, I think that pretty much kind of covers a lot of the scope of the rest of it.
1: But crime film seems broad. Like a boxing film is a sports film. A A heist film is a crime film. So what is the subcategory of this film? We know it's a crime film. Stylistically, it's a noir. Well,
0: I, I mean, I guess I would say it's a, a heist film. I guess I would put that in as a subcategory because they are going through a heist and then we deal with the aftermath of the heist as they kind of continue figuring out what's going on. Um, I, I think that it's in there. It's, it is a tricky line, though. Like, what specifically is the line for a film to kind of cross into a full-on heist film?
1: I I think it, it's heisty or heistish. <laughs> it's it's heist adjacent. It's definitely heist. There's heist involved.
0: Yes, 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 yes. All right. Uh, we haven't really talked much about. Uh, we we've talked a little bit about Ava Gardner as as Kitty Collins, our uh, or not really our antagonist, but certainly our femme fatale for this particular film. But Burt Lancaster, this was his first film. He had had a contract already with, I can't remember which particular studio uh, his contract was was with, but he had not yet worked on any film. This was the first time that he ended up getting cast in anything. We've talked about him in a number of projects. I mean, right out of the gate in his first film. I mean, how does this work for you as a Burt Lancaster film and how well does he do in the part?
1: You see him come on screen and you can kind of see, oh, he's he's going to be the big goofy boxer. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's something about this guy's career. Wait a minute. Oh, my God. That's Burt Lancaster. That's the whole thing. That's the arc. Like how I felt. Like that's what I was saying to myself. I, I think he's great. And I think by the end of the film, when he loses, or toward the end of the film, when he loses use of his hand and you realize that he's he's just kind of a, a lost guy, and that bookend becomes clear how he gets from the loss at the end of the film to what we've already seen at the beginning of the film in that first twelve minutes. He is able to tie those threads together just through emotion and presence, uh, in a way that kind of outclasses just about everyone else on screen in in the movie. He's a he talked about a slow burn performer. That Burt Lancaster is something else.
0: There's just energy. Like even in that opening scene, like if we only had the Ernest Hemingway adaptation and he was just playing the Swede in that opening, there was already enough just in the way that he portrayed that resignation. And as you said, the, the scene when they come in and kill me, you just have like his hands on the, the bed rails and stuff. It's just like, he was already giving enough to like, make me fully captivated with this actor and his performance and what he was doing here. And I, it, it ebbs and flows throughout the film as far as like the way that his uh, character goes from feeling like a good guy to a bad guy and everything. And I like, I really enjoyed his journey over the course of it. You know, he's, there's a, a scene when we're getting a story from Sam Levine's lieutenant who had been friends with him. They grew up since they were little kids. And now he was a lieutenant and the old Swede was a boxer and It was after his boxing career had ended, and he runs into him again, and he's decked out in that, like, that zoot suit, and he comes in, and this is where he's, like, he approaches the cop in a way that I just wasn't expecting, because this is a scene where the cop is trying to bust Kitty Collins for, uh, you know, carrying stolen jewelry, and then he decks him, like, you know, out of nowhere— Bert lancaster decks the cop and it's just like i don't know just the way that he his energy was flowing through the scenes i just like it was just exciting to see and you could tell that he's going to be a star because there's just so much on screen that he like exudes all the time
1: do you know anything about Sid mac's reputation directing performance because it this feels to me like such a, a a wonderful example of what must have been a strong partnership between Siadmak and this early actor right in one of his earliest performances like really harnessing skill and talent and charisma on screen and i i don't know if he's known for his characteristic direction of actors
0: you know i'm not sure. Well, he did crisscross with uh, Lancaster also. So obviously, they they at least worked a couple times together. I, I do know that Siad Mac was very frustrated with Ava Gardner. And in the end scene, he didn't feel like he was getting enough out of her. And he actually, uh, apparently went so far as to say, if you don't do the scene right, I'm going to hit you, essentially bullying her into kind of getting the performance out of her that he wanted. And that's that's not really great. It's not it's not great. I think that directors the the role of directors has certainly shifted. I think there was a period where the you know that was deemed Acceptable if you were going to get the performance that you wanted. Certainly, Kubrick has been, uh, you know, uh, something that's been stories about him. I I don't think that is uh, beyond a lot of uh, directors at the time, and so it's it's tough to hear those stories. But clearly, he was pushing to get the performances that he wanted. I certainly felt like he got it out of everybody here, even if he had to go to such awful extremes in Ava's case.
1: Yeah, I so I you know I don't know I, that that comes from my own ignorance, not not knowing you know some of those stories about Ciad Mac, and that's unfortunate. But you know, clearly here at least in this partnership, and I would say between all three of them, I think Ava Gardner's performance is just as as strong here. And I know this has become kind of a seminal work for her in her early career, and they're great in this movie together.
0: As much as this film kind of gave Burt Lancaster to the world. Ava Gardner had been appearing in a lot of films, but hadn't necessarily broken out, as it were. And I do think that this is kind of that point where people started taking notice of her. And she, uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, came to more prominence after this.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Now, Albert Decker plays Big Jim Colfax. You know, you talked about the mustache and everything, the the evil mustache uh, villain here. Do you like him, though? Do you think that he works well as our villain?
1: if i gave him any thought i probably would
0: so you don't give him much thought
1: i honestly like he doesn't stand out uh, to me as a terribly memorable figure because we don't like I, I don't think we see a ton of him in the movie right we get him as the principal architect of the heist and he's part of all of that he's interviewed by our hero insurance adjuster and we see him at the end and so you know in terms of his his role he that the role like the in, in terms of the, the character economy is to move certain like investigatory elements forward and he serves that very well. But if there is a character on screen, I'm focused on the insurance adjuster or Bert Lancaster or Ava Gardner and everybody else is is a utility player to me. I, I thought Big Jim Colfax was good, but I don't I he didn't stand out.
0: It's interesting. I found he did stand out. I really enjoyed him in the role. I will say I I prefer Ronald Reagan, surprisingly, in the uh, remake, which we'll talk about I a little bit later. I was going
1: to ask,
0: yeah. Uh, Ronald Reagan just, I, I think, brings, I think he's just given more to do, but I, I enjoyed Albert Decker quite a bit in the part. I thought he was actually an interesting uh, foil for our our hero here and we'll be talking about him uh in our member bonus episode the wild bunch that we'll be doing in a couple months as we continue that series that we're doing for members which uh, we're doing the 1969 national film critics association awards for best cinematography from 1969 i uh, definitely looking forward to talking about the wild bunch which was his last film that was the, whose last film albert decker Albert
1: Decker. Okay. I got lost because I think Ronald Reagan's role in this, in the remake of this movie, wasn't that the film that got him that, where he stopped making movies and went into politics? I'm pretty sure that was his, his last role as an actor before he ran for office. I don't know. And I don't know if that is, if I should think about that as as a token of history.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Let's see. The Killers was his last film. You're right. Interesting. Going back, though, to Albert Decker, this is a... A tragic, horrifying, sad end to him. Um, I'm just going to read this from his Wikipedia page. On May 5th, 1968, Decker was found dead in his Hollywood home by his fiance, fashion model, and future love boat creator, Geraldine Saunders. He was naked, kneeling in the bathtub with a noose tightly wrapped around his neck and looped around the shower curtain rod. He was blindfolded, his wrists were handcuffed, there was a ball gag in his mouth, and two hypodermic needles were insert- inserted in one arm. His body was covered in explicit words and drawings in red lipstick. Money and camera equipment were missing, but there was no sign of forced entry. Police originally said it was suicide, but the deputy coroner found no evidence of foul play nor any indication that he planned to take his life and ruled his death accidental, the result of autoerotic asphyxiation. Wow. Now.
1: It makes you want to stop that kind of behavior in your own life, right?
0: <laughs> well, I know there are levels of autoerotic asphyxiation, but. I just like, is that where they landed? Like, hypodermic needles in his arm, a ball gag, he's handcuffed, he's blindfolded. I'm like, that seems like a real, like, far yeah. journey to go down a road there to is. say, I'm going to go through all of this in order to please You're myself. Right.
1: There's a lot of runway behind him.
0: <laughs> the time you get to hypodermic like, wow. needles,
1: that is awful. His body is covered in story. explicit
0: words and drawings in red lipstick. Like, all of that, all by himself. <laughs> like, I... I don't know. I have some questions. I if one have of the messages. This
1: is my first time doing this. Then you know that he's a real experimentalist. Yeah. That's, oh my I, It's goodness. just like you really have to you you have to love the work to go down that road. And um, <laughs> he, he loved his work.
0: Dark, 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 dark. Yeah. Oh my goodness. One last category I wanted to talk about with this film is the score. Uh, that Miklos Orosa wrote for this. I love this score. It is driving. It is propulsive. It has so much energy. In conversation, uh, I think, in our member bonus uh, post-show chat a few episodes ago for the best years of our lives, uh, one of the questions was, do we think that it should have won best score? And I said, in a couple weeks when we talk about The Killers, which is um, also nominated for best score, uh, I will let you know what I thought about that uh, score, and I absolutely think the killers should have won. So much more interesting, so much more energy, so much more memorable. I enjoy the best years of our lives, but I've already kind of forgotten it. Whereas this, I just like. There's so much energy. I I love this score, um, and uh, it was just thrilled to uh, to hear it. It just it feels noir. It just it was perfect.
1: Can you find it? Like, do you listen to it, or do you just listen hear it in the movie? Have you searched for it? It's never been released, has it?
0: I haven't searched for it. I've listened to the, in prep for the episode, like the trailer, I've heard it through the trailer and uh, just everything for this, but I have not actually searched for it to see if it's readily available. But uh, it's hard because there is also a band called The Killers, as you might be familiar with. And so it's funny when you're like, I I just want to look for The Killers. Oh, no, I don't need every album by The Killers. (laughs) I just want the score to The Killers. But yeah.
1: That's funny. The Killers on YouTube, The Killers Super Soundtrack Suite. Oh, it's so good.
0: When people build that on YouTube, that's probably the best way to do it. There might be individual tracks. I'm looking on on Rocha's scores that are available on Apple Music, but I don't see it. Oh, one thing that I am seeing, though, is, of course, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, and we can't... End this conversation without saying this movie. You know, is one of the many featured in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which, of course, we talked about because the the killers. We haven't talked about the titular killers of this film, Pete. What did you think of our killers? What are we going to do?
1: I I mean I I like the killers. It's one of those movies where the the killers. killers, I mean, I love the killers. I also love the killers. I I, don't saddle me with that kind of middling opinion compared to yours. I love them so much. I invited them home. We had a glass of milk and a steak sandwich, and they're fantastic. <laughs> they, but, but they are sort of the Maltese Falcon of the film, right? It It's called The Killers. They're in the opening scene and the ending scene, and the rest is heist and investigation stuff. Like,
0: And they're hovering in the background at the funeral.
1: That's right. They're in the background of the funeral. I like the way they sort of ooze their way into the restaurant bar area. Like, they're there. They're present. They're great. No, they're great. I love them so much. They're the reason to watch this movie.
0: They are so perfectly cast, though. Like, what a pair. Like, just seeing the kind of the the almost like Laurel and Hardy shapes of them in the background at the funeral. Like, it was just like, interesting. I wonder why they have decided to stay here to be at the funeral. Like, just like, what is... Like, that was like one of those questions. I'm like, why would they be there? Like, I don't know. I just found it to be so interesting. I, I loved that pair. And it's just so interesting because they are definitely supporting characters in this version whereas in the 1964 version lee marvin is the protagonist of the film and he becomes essentially the role of the insurance investigator trying to figure out what is going on with this case such an interesting interesting. shift in the way the story is told and it works just as effectively i really love that version too but it just yeah this pair uh just top-notch
1: well, and there's not a little bit of me watching William Conrad in the, that opening 12 minutes and thinking, man, he is a young Orson Welles knockoff. And so I can kind of put it in my head that Orson <laughs> Welles is one of the assassins. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: so that's uh, yeah. another layer of the onion.
0: Definitely. Uh, well, I guess that's it. So we will be right back. But first, our credits.
1: The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Simo, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the numbers.com, boxoffice mojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at Truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. The one from National Lampoons European Vacation. Why is that so popular?
0: (laughs) Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe?
1: We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered. Like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films... Head to the slash merch.
0: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks
1: for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right. Sequels and remakes. Man, there are a few.
0: Well, uh, you know, the interesting one, uh, we've already talked about the 1964 version, which is interesting because Don Siegel directed it. Who was originally wanted or slated to direct this? And Robert Seadmack actually came in uh, to replace him, which is kind of an interesting twist that he finally directed a version later, which also was directed to be on television at the time, but was then deemed too bloody to be on TV. So ended up later getting a theatrical release, which is kind of funny. But before that, Andrei Tarkovsky along with uh, a filmmaking partner of his actually made a student film version in 1956. He actually approached his uh, film professors, he and his uh, directing partner approached his film professors and said, we would like to do this adaptation of Ernest Hemingway's short story. The professor said, I guess it's okay, we've never done an adaptation of something before in these film classes, but uh, sure. And so he did. It's available and it's actually quite good. It's a solid adaptation specific Specifically of just the short story, uh, you know, you can edit just the way that the the camera, uh, the framing, the the pacing and everything, it felt very Tarkovsky. I enjoyed it quite a bit.
1: And it's just of the first 12 minutes blown up into a hostage film, essentially?
0: It's just a 20 minute uh, short of just that story
1: absolutely. Oh. Yeah. oh, okay. I thought it was Tarkovsky made like a 3 hour version of Oh the yeah. Opening. No, it's Diner it's literally scene. a
0: student film. It's like 20 minutes yeah. and that's it. Uh, fascinating. So, okay. Yeah. Cool. And then I mentioned dead men don't wear plaid. You can catch the. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's just the specifically the killers who are used in that one. And last but not least, as of 2016, Andrew Kevin Walker, who of course had written Seven, apparently wrote a new adaptation of this story. Uh, unfortunately, I've heard nothing else of it. I don't know if it still is in somebody's hands as something that they're trying to make. But I would be very curious to see a new telling of this particular story.
1: Especially from him.
0: Yeah, right? Yeah, interesting voice for it.
1: Fascinating, yeah. Uh, Okay, then we need to talk about awards. That's why we're here. Lay it out.
0: This film was nominated for, uh, it had three wins with four other nominations. It's nice to see for a noir that it kind of ended up kind of cracking into that because I don't think necessarily the noirs were always doing that. But it did get four Oscar nominations. Best Director, but lost to William Wyler for The Best Years of Our Lives. Best Film Editing, also lost to The Best Years of Our Lives. Best Music, scoring of a drama or comedy motion picture, which we've already talked about lost to the best years of our lives, and, of course, per this series, best writing screenplay or adapted screenplay also lost to the best years of our lives. At the National Film Preservation Board, it won, well, it, it, it always classifies it as a win, but it was added to in 2008 to the National Film Registry. It won Best Motion Picture at the Edgar Allan Poe Edgar Awards, and it was included on the top 10 list of films for the National Board of Review four films from 1946
1: okay now where do you stand now that you've seen this and best years of our lives back to back in terms of the best writing screenplay
0: oh i would still lean toward the best years of our lives that film was rock solid i just think that um Uh, Again, I think some of my issues with this boil down to kind of the the structure of the insurance salesman side.
1: That is exactly uh, exactly where I stand on it. If there are if there are stars to fall, that's going to be where they land. Yeah. And yet, how do we feel about where the dollars fell?
0: You know, this was a uh, frustrating one, another one with just no budget information out there. I did find some release information, at least. It released August 30th, 1946, and it went on to earn $2.5 million, or $40.8 million in today's dollars. I assume that's not too bad, but again, I just have no idea how much it cost to make. So, considering the noir feel, I would guess it wasn't a much, but again, it's just speculation.
1: It, it's a little interesting that this movie has become so lauded in critical circles that there isn't more information on it. it just feels like a thing like hasn't Filmumentaries done something on this
0: yeah the problem is uh if it wasn't done at the time it's really hard to find you know and unless you have an eddie Mannix working for the studio who is uh <laughs> meticulous in tracking everything a lot of this stuff just unfortunately is just kind of buried with time
1: yeah All right. Well, I love that we dropped this on the list. I love that it happened to be here. I thought it was a a really wonderful film and nice to see so many, the the birthplace and continued birthplace of so many tropes uh, that we see play out in the movies we love now.
0: Yeah, just great stuff. So um, we'll be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Roberto Rossellini's Rome, Open City.
1: Engineer Giorgio Manfredi. Pronto? C'è Giorgio? Marcello!
0: Devi andare a Don Pietro, sbrigate! Attenzione, Don Pietro! Bisogna stringere un blocco compatto contro il comune nemico. Non dubitate, non mi sfuggirà. Non è per sfiducia nei vostri
1: sistemi, ma preferisco fare da me
0: preparato la tua testa. Giovanni e Visco. Se non finisce presto sta guerra io divento scemo. Domani andremo da Don Pietro, mi avevo perso di nascondermi per qualche tempo in un convento, ci avremo insieme. Francesco, chi è? Francesco, i tedeschi, il fascista!
1: che non ne posso proprio più. St'inverno sembra che non debba finire mai.
0: Finirà più, finirà. E tornerà pure la primavera. E sarà più bella delle
1: altre, perché saremo lì. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
0: You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
1: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
0: The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show.
1: In Season 13, we explore various awards categories in the films nominated in them.
0: We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The
1: 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Suns. I Am, based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers.
0: The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel.
1: So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater,
0: A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball,
1: The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter jackie brown the deep end
0: the gray the woman in black and top gun maverick which i'm very much looking forward to revisiting get the source books at the slash originals start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered visit the slash originals today
1: andy letterboxd what are you gonna do i already hinted there might be some falling stars where do you land on your letterboxd review
0: This I just absolutely enjoy, um, but I also really enjoy the 1964 version that Don Siegel made. I, I feel like both of them for me end up being four stars and a heart. I think they're incredibly strong. There are some things that I struggle with with the films themselves, but on the whole, I just think they both are strong representations of the genre, and I just have a great time with each of them in their own way.
1: Me too. And let me just say in the background on our notes, we have this collaborative note. Andy just told me what I need to vote for this movie. He <laughs> pre-wrote even... it. He doesn't know. And he pre-wrote my letterboxd rating in the notes. He's damn lucky because he's right. I am also four stars in a heart. But sir, that is a touch presumptuous. <laughs>
0: i was just not even paying attention i was just <laughs> clicking around and i just did it without even thinking i saw mine and i just was like doing clicking things and, yes yeah. you were click happy really? i get it <laughs> phew i'm glad i was right <laughs> yes
1: four stars and a heart confirmed and you know what we don't say this often enough find andy letterboxcom slash film and find me i'm just pete wright over on Letterbox. follow us we we
0: rate movies there you need to stop saying that. You are not just Pete Wright. You are Pete Wright. Oh, I'm Pete Wright. <laughs> I am every time.
1: Simply, comma, quote, Pete Wright. No spaces. No. <laughs> quote Pete Wright. End quote. That's all. Not simply Pete Wright, that's all.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. So funny.
1: I'm gonna change my letterbox handle to <laughs> simply Pete Wright, just that's all.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, Remember, you can visit TheNextWheel.com slash letterbox and get your patron or pro membership. That's it for today. What did you think about The Killers? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we will be talking about the movie this week.
1: When the movie ends.
0: Our conversation begins.
1: Letterboxd give it Andrew,
0: as Letterbox always doeth.
1: Okay, what do you got? You got a re- there. Are people, people have all kinds of tastes. There's no Letterbox shaming here.
0: There is no Letterbox shaming. Oh, I, I, I want to say that, and I feel like I picked mine because I'm Letterbox shaming someone, and now you made <laughs> me feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honestly. Here's the thing. My is, mine is a one-and-a-half star review uh, by Jenny Kaktuk, who I think just may not be familiar with film noir and the way that film noir films. Work. Uh, This is Jenny Kaktuk's review. It was cool, and then it was just weird and sexist. The plot twist is that the woman is the evil one, and they built up to this by having random people say, I completely understand women, I'm a women expert, to make it all a huge shock that all along women are evil and they didn't understand women after all. She's depicted as this evil, seducing, controlling, deceptive woman because we only see her through the perspective of men. Maybe she's innocent. Who knows? I wish they made it more about fear of women, prejudice, misogyny, instead of just being all these things by accident. OBS. I can't expect much from an old film. I don't forgive it.
1: (laughs) How? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's much less uh, about old film. It's about an entire genre.
0: It's about trope, an entire genre. expectation yeah. of tropes, yeah. Right.
1: Well, I I also have I have a I have one and a bonus. Uh, N- Niels Mathis Unterhund says uh, it's disappointing. The killer started off very promising, heavily contrasting black and white cinematography, a solid pace, a simple but intriguing premise. Everything was present to turn this into an entertaining film, except the will to keep it going. After the introduction, it gets duller by the minute. Two killers for hire, murder. A gas station clerk, an insurance claim specialist is, specialist, is interested in the case and starts an investigation. Through a series of flashbacks, we learn that the clerk is an ex-boxer whose glory has faded over the years. The deeper they dig, the more it looks like there's a hidden angle to the murder. The intro is moody. The rest of the film is just people talking and narratives unfolding. Endless conversations between rather bland characters that reveal the true nature of the murder, which isn't interesting in the least. It's a shame to see the potential go to waste. Looking at the first 10 minutes, this could have been a decent class. Classic. And that's followed up by a one star from Fly, one out of ten, go stream Mr. Bright side by the killers instead. <laughs> which <laughs> may be more your cup of tea.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. There are a number of people who definitely call out the fact that the opening, which was adapted from the the specifically the Hemingway story, that's the part that works for them. The rest of it they're not fans of. So there's definitely some of those, which ties into yours.
1: Yeah, truly.